Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will leave the faith by paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared with a hot iron. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods which God created for receiving with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing for rejection, rather received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by God's word and by prayer. Lay these things out to the sisters and brothers. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished on the words of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. This is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptance. Therefore, for this we toil and struggle, because we hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm your lead pastor here at Zao. That was quite the, uh, the moment from the Zao band, yeah? <laughs> Some folks were asking, that is Semler, um, who is a queer Christian artist um, who does a lot of processing about church hurt through music and humor, and so um, I'm really grateful that we are the kind of space that can engage in that as well. But this is an intense text, yeah? And like, wow, the Bible just cuts sometimes. <laughs> the hypocrisy of liars. Except that if we can get some remove, like I think some of us, did anyone feel a little prickly like hearing that? There's like some stuff in there and we'll, we will unpack a lot. But <laughs> if it is possible to kind of step outside of the ways that those words or context might have been used to harm you? Can anyone feel a little bit of satisfaction at the calling out of the hypocrisy of liars in the church? <laughs> like, if nothing else, it's just validation that this is not a new problem. We've been experiencing this for a long time. And actually, hypocrisy is one of the main cultural associations with the Christian church. Research confirms that that in the United States, um, there are some words associated with Christianity, and two of the three highest ranking are hypocrisy and homophobia. And like, I think that most folks are in this room at some level because those things resonate <laughs> as like harmful experiences of the church, yeah? Like we are trying to heal a pretty deep and long-standing wound in American Christianity that has become so powerful, the hypocrisy and the queer phobia coming together to form this like monster in our culture. And I think that hypocrisy part is really, is really wounding. And like Queer phobia is one of the forms it takes, but it's, it's so much deeper and more layered than any one particular doctrinal issue, the hypocrisy in the church. I saw a social media post from somebody who's, who has made a career of working with folks to heal spiritual harm that they have encountered in Christian community. There are a lot of these now. It's like a field, which, like, on the one hand, praise God, we need it. And on the other hand, like, oof, oh man, does that just lay bare our hurt? 
that we need professionals to dedicate their vocations to helping us heal specifically from the wounds of religious community. And this particular post was somebody um, kind of, you know, it was like a reel, and they were like, uh, hey, pro tip from you know, a person in my field to you. If somebody uh, who approaches you at church who you don't know very well and they have that look in their eye, that, oh, I love you, I'll pray for you look, and they invite you to coffee, say no. <laughs> don't go. <laughs> and like, I think it's funny and it resonates and it gets views because it's real, right? It's like very true. And too many of us have had that experience. But what a horrifying indictment of the church. If someone in your community comes to you with concern and asks you for coffee, don't go. That is not an act of friendship. Too often that is a hostile act that's related to policing people's lives, to judgment, and to this internal hypocrisy but the worst thing about it, I think, is that all of this is dressed up as love, right? We know we're supposed to love. <laughs> the scriptures are super clear about that, so we can't really get around the commandment to love, especially if we want to say that we're following Jesus. Like, the, the most consistent message of the scriptures is love, and there's some beautiful stuff in there, right? Dear friends, it says in 1 John, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves is born from God and knows God. The person who doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. That's in our scriptures. If you've ever felt that way, I just think that God is love. Like, you didn't have to make, up, make that up or come up with it. Like, it's in there. We've been saying this. This is the wisdom passed down from generations. God is love. And to know God is to know love. And to be loving is to be in love with God. It goes on. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love each other, God remains in us, and his love is made perfect in us. This is how we know we remain in him, and he remains in us, because he has given us a measure of this spirit, that is to say the spirit of love. We know that we are called to love. That has never been up for debate. But love is really hard work. Have you ever kind of resented how hard it is to, like, be loving. <laughs> like you're in a situation, a relationship, a moment where you're like, I know what the loving thing to do would be, <laughs> but I have some other ideas I'd like to try first. <laughs> love is hard work, and the scriptures are clear about that. They call love patient and kind, not easily angered, not holding grudges, long-suffering, is a word used repeatedly to describe the nature of love. So since we know that we're supposed to love, but loving is really hard work, it's tempting rather than doing the hard, messy work of love, it's easier to just change the definition, <laughs> right? Oh, this is tough love. I'm speaking truth in love. Yeah? And it doesn't feel like love. And 
we have all kinds of work to do with boundaries and expectations and choices and culture. And I just mentioned how love doesn't always feel like the nicest, easiest thing. But when people are dressing up hate as love, we know it in our bodies. We feel it in our beings. This doesn't feel like love. This doesn't feel like faithfulness. Now, one of the ways that we know we're supposed to love is because Jesus would never shut up about it. And when people were like, Jesus, what do I got to do? But like, really, what do I got to do? But like, for real. And he's like, um, love. Love your neighbor as yourself. And they're like, oh, but can't I just love God? And he's like, okay, yes, yes, love God, love neighbor as self. These are the same thing. This is what the whole law is about. And what's really interesting to me here is that you've got people debating the law up, down, and sideways. You've got people dedicating themselves to the finest nuances of the law. But when Jesus says, actually, the whole point of this law is relationship, is community, is compassion, is love, is care for one another, they're like, no, but really, what's it about? Like, can you just give me a more clear and black and white set of the rules? I'd like to know if I should be taking a tenth of my spices to the temple. And he's like, just love your neighbor, bro. Like, be, love, be generous. The whole, that law is about... And Jesus has to do this over and over again. He's healing people on the Sabbath. And they're like, oh, but the law. And Jesus says really explicitly in Mark 2, one of, in, um, one of my favorite passages, like, the law is not... Like, you're not getting it. Human beings were not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for human beings. We are not here to serve the law. We are here to serve one another. And that is what it means to serve God. And so when he was asked to elaborate on love your neighbor, they were like, but who is my neighbor? <laughs> Trying to find a loophole. <laughs> Jesus told a story, one that we might be familiar with. We often refer to it as the Good Samaritan. Now, this was a story of somebody in need, somebody bloodied, beaten, wounded on the side of a road. And the people who were very concerned with the law, who didn't want to touch that wounded man because he had blood on him, which would have made them ritually unclean, people who were associated with the holiest orders of the law, they had nothing to do with that real, live, broken, hurting, wounded, bloodied person because the law and the rules were so important to them. And along came a Samaritan, and the Samaritan was less concerned with the rules and more concerned with the human being in need. And the Samaritan tended to and cared for the person who was wounded. Now everyone was scandalized by this because it was a Samaritan. And Samaritans were known for not getting the rules right. That's their whole deal. Because in the area in which Jesus was teaching, there was a long-standing history with Samaria and with the folks who were from the same Hebrew people, but they had been split and fractured by all the same wounds that split and fracture communities now. There were political and military tensions but the two biggest contentious things were that, number one, the temple was in Jerusalem, which was in the south, 
And that's where you were supposed to go to give your sacrifices. And if you didn't follow that rule, you weren't worshiping God correctly. And the Samaritans were not doing that, so they weren't worshiping correctly by the rules. But the other problem is that the Samaritans, Samaria was up north. It was closer to other places. There was a lot more integration of other cultures, including Assyria. And so many of the Samaritans had intermarried with, with Assyrians. And this is why they were, they were covered in slurs and hate by those in the south who would call them dogs or half-breeds. And again, here we see this focus on marriage, of forbidding the marrying of the wrong person. As though love and connection and family are determined more by rules of purity than relationship. And here we see the parallels between racial purity and sexual purity. If you just wanted to add that to your list of evidence that racism, misogyny, and queer phobia are all deeply connected. We see this here, marriage, forbidding of marriage between the Samaritans and the Assyrians. Now, if you love the person, as this Samaritan did, you marry your love. You worship your God in your culture and your home. You greet the person wounded on the side of the road with compassion and care because the rules are there to help point you towards love. And so, when love is blinking and flashing and blaring, you've already arrived. If you see the person wounded and in need of support, you offer them love. If you love the rules, you see the temple commandments around blood, you go, ew, that's a violation, and you move on your way. And so we come back to this question, do we exist to fulfill the law, or does the law exist to fulfill the people and to fulfill love? Now, some will say all of it is to glorify God. Sure. But what glorifies God? Is it compliance? That's carceral logic. And here is how we are trying to root out that sin. Compliance does not glorify God. Obedience for itself does not glorify God. Relationship, love, care, these things glorify God. The idea of obedience in itself, denying our pleasures and desires, is that what glorifies God? Now, some of you may be having flashbacks because you probably have been told that, yes, that is exactly what glorifies God. Yeah? That self-denial is holy because it glorifies God. But, like, actually, no, no, no. God is not glorified by our self-denial. We are not called to deny ourselves for the sake of itself. When we are called to deny ourselves, to make sacrifices, it is for the sake of relationship and healing. It is so that we would no longer be cut off from one another, trying desperately to meet our own needs in isolation. The call not to be selfish is not because your desires are bad. It is because our desires and needs are best met in relationship and community. It becomes toxic and twisted when we isolate ourselves, worrying only about our own needs because we can't actually meet them that way. We are called to be healed to one another in love, Re reconciliation, solidarity, 
And when we are, we can have those very same pleasures and desires more truly met through connection, healing, support, and love. Now, I should be careful here because I'm getting into stuff that gets me in trouble on the internet a lot. (laughs) Earlier, when we were reading the scriptures, that phrase, deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, I can't, I can't, I can't read that stuff in the scriptures anymore without immediately, like, it, my, my TikTok comment section just flashes before my eyes. <laughs> Is it super weird to hear talking about, like, false teachings in, like, a queer-affirming space? That is a phrase that gets hurled at us so often. And, like, I just want to say I am with you. I am in it. We are here. The ground is beneath us. Our community is next to us. Our God is breathing life into our lungs. And this is the space from which we are safe enough to engage this conversation about what exactly false teaching actually is. Now, one of the things that Will Gaffney, who translated this passage um, in this way, brings up is that this demon language, deceitful spirits, the teachings of demons, it's, it's something that, like, is, it's very culturally specific. And she's not trying to make the case that there aren't demons or whatever, but she's saying that is a language, that is a language meant to convey something. And what it conveys has changed over time. What it conveys now is also culturally specific, but it tends to be culturally specific to a very particular kind of conservative Christianity. And what it means in these scriptures is it's like, it's, Take this so seriously. It is the language of utmost evil. It is saying this is the sickness that is raging through our community, and if we don't do something about it, it's going to hurt us all. Now, in our context, demon language has been used against people experiencing mental illness and neurodivergence, any community that is teaching affirmation, We've been called false teachers because because we're in the streets with Black Lives Matter. We've been called false teachers because we want to abolish uh, prisons. Like, anything at this point that diverges from a a particular kind of carceral, conservative Christianity is now associated with this. But the scriptures are really just, again, flashing a light, saying this is a huge, nasty, evil problem in our community. So what exactly is it saying? I'm just going to read it again, and I want you to pay attention to what stands out to you. In latter times, some will leave the faith by paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared with hot iron. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods. So anything stand out to you about that? (laughs) That's a real question. I want folks to shout it out. What's that? Garbage? Anything else stand out? Deconstruction movement? Conscience is seared. Purity culture, don't get married. 
Yeah, so when I'm encountering this, right, there's so much in there. There's so many of these layers. And every piece of this has been pulled apart and hurled at a lot of us. But what stands out to me, one of, one of the words is marriage, right? Forbidding marriage. That that's actually the wrong teaching. So they're saying this huge, nasty, evil problem in our community you can tell, like, you can tell the people who are buying into this wound, who are buying into this false logic, the first thing that you should look for is if they tell you that you can't get married. That is the number one piece of evidence offered here, that forbidding marriage is a sign of hypocrisy and it is a misunderstanding of the goodness of God. Because the text goes on to say all things that are made by God are good and they should be received with thanksgiving. Now, I take that to say marriage, understood as loving covenant between people, should be received with thanksgiving. Queerness, good and holy, made by God in the image of God, should be received with thanksgiving. And you can tell that somebody has fallen victim to this evil line of thinking when they start forbidding people from marrying one another. How could they do that? How could they do that? And again, here we are, back to the Samaritan, that loving person who was also condemned for marrying. Connection, commitment, these things are beautiful. And if they are condemned by someone, that is the first thing that you should look for. That is a red flag, that they have fallen victim to a false and deceitful teaching. Second word that stands out to me is the second red flag they raise abstinence. Now here they're talking about abstinence from foods. But again, they say all things that are made by God are good. Abstinence, this practice of self-denial, it's another red flag. Now, the word abstinence, I might not be the only person in the room who associates it with purity culture and anti-sex teachings, right? But I was like, what else? What else does this word kind of like call to mind? So I went to my handy-dandy thesaurus, and, and I looked it up. So I'm like, okay, so what else? What are these synonyms? What, what, are we, what else could we substitute in here? Self-denial, chastity, abnegation, renunciation. I think there's a church somewhere named for each of these words. <laughs> right? There are nuns somewhere <laughs> named each of these words. <laughs> these are super holy words that we're supposed to associate with church. And yet, if that is the main substance of your teaching... It is, according to this scripture, evidence that you have lost your way. Because self-denial, abstinence from the good things created by God, is not holy. The scripture goes on to say nothing was made for rejection. Nothing was made for rejection. Now that feels like news to a lot of us who have been told that our, our very identities were made for rejection. Like, the church has been telling us that our whole lives. But that is a red flag. Because the scriptures say that nothing was made for rejection. 
but to be received with thanksgiving. So you might be wondering, how exactly do conservative churches interpret this passage? (laughs) Well, you know, they're like, okay, yeah, legalism is wrong. An emphasis on the rules is wrong. And what they get right, I believe, is that there is a pattern in the church of kind of making up rules to feel holy and to feel holier than other people. But where we diverge is they say, well, they're the rules that we made up, and then they're the rules that God made up. And the rules that we made up are bad because they're bad, but the rules that God made up are good because they're good. Don't look into it. (laughs) And so we end up back at this place where the rules are the point, where the point is compliance. And now the problem is not what is the spirit of these rules, what is the, the nature, the intention, what are we called to do? Jesus' answer, love. Now it becomes, well, the rules are the point, but we just better better make really clear what the rules are. So you've got the wrong rules that you're complying with. You should be complying with my rules. And now we're back where we started. Because that's not the underlying sin of the church. The sin of the church is worshiping the idea of God and not God. The sin of the church is loving the idea of people and not actual people. Now, one of these commentators was kind of fleshing out that the objection here in context, the objection at the time in this letter was to the Gnostics, which was a particular form of belief deeply influenced by Greek philosophy. The Gnostics, the spiritualists, those deeply influenced by Greek philosophy, they rejected the human body. Now, some of you may be thinking like, yeah, the flesh. (laughs) Paul talks a lot about the flesh. But weirdly, there actually is more nuance, even to what Paul is saying about the flesh, than this idea that the body and the soul are completely separate. And that is a more Greek idea. And Greek philosophers of that time were were very powerful. We still are deeply influenced by Greek philosophy now. It's the idea that we still hold that the soul and the body are separate. These are different things. The mind and the soul were eternal, ephemeral, separate, and good. And to the Greeks, the body was gross and mortal and dirty. Greek philosophy was all about ideas. Truth meant the truest idea of a thing. So, people heard of Plato, super important Greek philosopher around three to four hundred years before Jesus. The idea of Platonic forms still influences our culture now, but was heavily, heavily influential at the time. And the form, according to Plato, was the truest idea of a thing. That the physical world is not as real as timeless, absolute, unchangeable ideas. One of the examples is there is physically no perfect circle. But a perfect circle is the idea of a circle, which can be perfect because it doesn't have to be physical. And like, this is, this is like saying you can understand something most fully, the truest version of it, by isolating it like a bug trapped in amber. That's the real bug, not whatever messiness might be happening in its own actual habitat. 
Or like, it makes me think of like those sci-fi movies. They're usually like criminal sci-fi something where they always have these like 3D hologram projections of some, you know, some person or place or piece of evidence and they just kind of go like, hmm. As though looking at it completely removed from environment actually gives them more information, right? This is the platonic form. This is the true thing, the thing that matters. And like, that's interesting. It's an interesting way to think about things, but it is not consistent with the teachings of Jesus. It's just not. Jesus was Jewish, and Jewish folks were not Greek in their philosophical thinking. Jewish philosophy has a much different understanding of the world, of creation. Think about that word, creation, creature, creator. All of these words are relational. You are not a thing. You are a created thing. You are a creature created in the image of your creator. All of that is in relationship. You can't isolate that. You can't throw that up in a hologram and hmm at it. You're not looking at anything. You've taken something out of its context and away from its soul. Because in Jewish thought, the soul is not something to be separated from the body. The soul and the body are one. One of the words that we translate most often as soul from Hebrew into English is the word nephesh. It can be understood as soul, but when we translate it into soul in English, we lose something because we're thinking of the Greeks. It could also accurately be translated as living being, life, creature, desire, passion, heart, and my favorite, appetite. The soul is supposed to not have any desires or appetites, right? The soul is supposed to be different and pure and holy and other. It's my flesh that has appetites. Ew. That's a very Greek way of thinking of it. But that is not the Jewish context in which Jesus was teaching. That is not the, the grounds upon which the teachings of love were founded. It was founded on nephesh, the soul, the being, the creature who is one, who is alive. You don't have nephesh, you don't have a soul, you are nephesh. The clay, God created a human being out of clay, God created that form. There's your form, Plato, separated from everything else. But it wasn't anything until God breathed life into it, and then it was nephesh, Adam, the first human being became soul, became living, became a creature. We are animated, living, created things. And so, when we are called to love one another, the questions underneath all of our actions are, do you care about my soul? And when you care about my soul, I'm not asking you if you care what happens to the idea of my salvation for eternity. I'm asking if you care about what happens in my being. If you care about my soul, you care about soul. You care about my created self. You care about my flesh. You care about my longings and my desires. If you want to tell me you're caring for my soul, you better care about how lonely I am at night. You better care 
about what it means to feel connected and seen. You better care about the fullness of who God created here because you can't separate my soul from my identity. You can't separate my salvation from my queerness. You can't separate my love from my marriage. You can't separate my my saved number on your chart from my community, my family, my people. So do you care about your ideas? Do you care about your doctrine? Or do you care about people? Is a human being as important to you as the idea of your perfect, saved soul? I know the answer for God. I know the answer for Jesus. Jesus was clear about this. So how has the church gotten it so wrong? We are called to love God and God's creation, not the idea of God. Do we love love? Do we love one another? Do we love God and God's creation? Or do we love the idea of power and perfection? God's creation is messy. I don't know how long y'all have been here, but it is a mess. It is physical. It is substantive. It is passionate. It is holy. And all these things are connected and related. They are not Ideas in isolation, but real bodies, real material, living beings, an ecosystem of interconnection and interdependence. The operating principle of creation is not perfection. It is not adherence to rules. It is not compliance. It is not platonic ideals. The operating principle of creation is love. Just as God is love. And love is relationship. It is care for one another's fullness and well-being. It is understanding that we are meant to be together. We are meant to be in our bodies, in our flesh. We are meant to care for one another wounded by the side of the road. We are meant to eat and drink and dance. We are meant to laugh and cry and love. We are meant to live, to be soul, to be alive and created and care for one another. And the rules are there to help guide us and point us in the right direction. But the rules are there to serve the purpose of life, which is love. And any time someone forgets that, they head down a dangerous and demonic path towards hate and hypocrisy. We are made messy by design, y'all. Living, fleshly, embodied beings. And whether or not we are here for that mess... That's what God made. Everything created by God is good and nothing for rejection, rather received with thanksgiving. We are called to receive one another with gratitude and care and love, not rejecting what is good. And so I'm here to tell you what you already know, what you already know in your inmost being, what you have known in your body since you felt love for the first time. You are made by love for love. And those who would tell you otherwise have gone down a dangerous and dark path. They have forgotten who they are. They have forgotten who you are. And they have forgotten God. Because God is love. But the good news is this. 
When we love, we remain in God, and God remains in us. And love grows messy and exponentially through our ecosystems of care. We can repair this wound, but we won't do it by debating one another's doctrinal lists of black and whites and do's and don'ts. We will heal it by loving one another in our fleshly, messy, wild, created selves. Amen.